Good morning. I don't know if Advent snuck up on you post-Thanksgiving and we're diving right into Advent. If you've got a Bible, go with me to Luke chapter one. That's where we're gonna be today. And uh, if you were in town visiting, do we have any folks that came in for Thanksgiving and you're still with us? All right, a handful, good, we're glad you're here. Glad you're joining with us. We're beginning our uh, Advent series as we think about the incarnation and reflect upon that every year. And we're getting to do that with a lot of churches around the globe. And that's kind of, the church calendar is a really fun thing in that way uh, in that it, it kind of reminds us, just think about the fact that believers globally, worldwide, are now during this Advent season reflecting upon what it means that God has come into humanity, broken in to the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And that we're all reflecting on the meaning of that for our lives together it's a really rich and sweet thing. Also rich and sweet is that you would know that my guy Luka Doncic had 30 points, four assists, eight rebounds last night. I'd like to see the rebound numbers and the assist numbers a little higher, okay? It's not as balanced as I want it to be. But the night before that, he went 30, 12, and eight. That's better. And then a few nights before that, he was 25 and like 10, and ooh, I, don't, I might be wrong, but I think it was about six, all right? And let me tell you, I'm a box score guy. How many of you check out box scores? Okay, yeah, if you, if you like sports, you check out box scores after the game happens. Now here's the thing, I just told you those box scores, but those box scores don't really tell you anything about if one of those baskets, you know, two of those 30 points were like a game-winning shot, or what they looked like if they were scored in the paint, if it was a beautiful sort of pirouette through the paint, through, the, you know, through all the, the taller guys, and then, or if it was a dunk, or if it was like a logo three, Right, and some of you are just wondering who is Luka Doncic, we don't even know. It's okay, you don't need to know, all right? Here's the thing, I don't like sports because of checking box scores, all right? If you check box scores, the reason you watch the game is because the box scores can't tell you the aesthetic beauty of an athlete who is elite doing what they do so well. Like if, if you watch sports, my guess is part of the reason you watch them, it's because it's pretty amazing to watch, and it's aesthetically pleasing to watch someone who can make their body do the things that these elite level athletes can do. Right? If track is your sport, or if the endurance running, you know, whatever it may be, basketball, baseball, football, the things that some people are able to do with their sort of, the physical intelligence they possess with their bodies, it's impressive, yes? I mean, even people who don't like sports can appreciate that someone is able to do something that you look at and you go, I could never, ever, do that, I could never accomplish that. Well, the reason I tell you that today is because we come into the season of Advent now, we're gonna be looking at a section of scripture that is what we call narrative in its genre. Uh, and what I mean by narrative is if you think about the different types of scripture that there are within the word of God, there are, there's poetry and poems, there's songs, there are letters that are written to specific groups of people at specific times that are about specific problems and it's sort of advice and counsel and teaching. There are sections of scripture that are what we call didactic. They are lessons, like if you were sitting in a classroom being told, here's this information, and you would digest that information. And then there are sections of scripture that are narrative. And the reason God gives us narrative in the scripture, one of the reasons, is because he's inviting us into the story that he is telling in a way that is different than when he's just conveying information. God is not interested, this Advent, in just giving you the basic facts. Jesus was born, he lived a perfect life, he died, and he rose. 30 points, 12 assists, eight rebounds. What he said, I'm not sure what the box score would be that would equate, all right, so just go with me. 
what he wants you to do is he wants you to see all the beauty of how that work was done. He's not just giving you the box score. He's giving you the full game, if you will, showing you the aesthetic beauty of his work in the world through narrative. You know, if you ever, if, when you read through scripture and you read through narratives, my hope is that one of the things you experience is you can put yourself in the story. Have you noticed that? That you can almost angle the story from different, through different lenses and you go, man, what would it be like to be Mary visited by Gabriel? What would I be, if I was God on high looking down upon this work and doing it, what would, what would be my lens upon that story? If I were the shepherds in the field and the angels appeared in the sky, saying glory to God in the highest, how might I react to that? Have you put yourself in the story? That's part of why narrative exists in scripture is to help you enter into the story and be impacted at a deeper level than just here are the facts of the story. Here are the facts of what God has done, but rather to see with every nuance, with every turn of phrase, with every word, Scripture's inviting you into the narrative of God's work in the world. You are a part of the work of God in the world. And he's inviting you to see that. And so this Advent, what we're gonna do is we're gonna reflect through the narrative of Jesus' birth. We're gonna begin today looking at Gabriel telling Mary about Jesus and that he would send him through her into the world. We'll reflect upon that. And then we'll get to look at the narrative as it progresses. And so each week we'll continue forward in that story. And I hope, see, that Jesus is the center of God's plan for the world and that as we reflect upon that, there are some unique calls upon our life in terms of how we respond to that message. So we're gonna look at the narrative today. All right, everybody good? All right, good, let's look at it together. Look with me at Luke chapter one, beginning in verse 26. And uh, then we're just gonna walk our way through verse by verse this text. I'm gonna try and draw out some uh, things that might help you enter the story a little better, and then we'll draw some implications for that. We'll, we'll point to some applications for us because there's two spe- very specific things that Luke is wanting to tell us. And by the way, if it helps you to understand the, the value of narrative and the birth narratives, is remember that not all of the Gospels record the birth narratives of Jesus. Mark just begins with Jesus as an adult. If you recollect the Gospel of Mark, he begins with the story of John the Baptist not being born, but of John the Baptist baptizing and then Jesus being baptized. That's, we just start right there, right? John is a more theological gospel. John begins by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, John is just interested in you knowing that Jesus is preexistent, eternal God. And he begins there, and then jumps right into the ministry of Jesus. But Luke and Matthew, thanks be to God, begin with the story of Jesus' birth. Help us understand the importance of this narrative. So let's look at it together. Let's begin reading in verse 26 of Luke chapter one. It says this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and it will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom 
there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's a beautiful narrative, right? As we hear the angel Gabriel proclaiming to Mary that he would send her. So let's begin with a little bit of context and then we'll just take them kind of two verses at a time and I wanna draw out some things for you as I said. Now, we need to get context that is both sort of uh, broad and narrow, immediate and you know, less immediate, right? So the first kind of context that you need is the very broadest context. Okay, so how long was that? <clears throat> it felt a long time up here, I'll tell you that. It's like a staring contest with you guys. It was about 25 seconds. God spoke to Mary and, and before to Zechariah about sending John. He had been silent for 400 years prior to that. Now, if you were uncomfortable in those 25 seconds, just imagine with me what it was like to experience the silence of God for 400 years. Now listen, God was not silent in the sense that his general revelation, the stars and the creation were still proclaiming the handiwork of God, that he was creator God upholding the universe, the power of his right hand. He was still speaking in that way, but he had not spoken a specific word of revelation during that intertestamental period between the Old Testament prophets and now until he sends the angel Gabriel into the world for 400 years years. That's the context into which Gabriel enters now, sent by God. Did you notice that phrase? The angel Gabriel was sent by God. I have to imagine from Gabriel, I'm thinking, really? I get to go? You're sending me? You've been quiet for 400 years and I get to go? That's a pretty sweet spot. Please tell me you've got something good for me to say. Right? So he's been completely quiet. Now, now, there's a couple of reasons the context of that silence is really important. God wasn't being passive aggressive. He wasn't like some of us in our marriages where we go, well, I'm gonna give the cold shoulder just because I'm mad. Now, he, by the way, I don't recommend that. Bad strategy, right? But lest we put that sort of passivity on God, that's not what he's doing. He's silent for purposefulness. If God doesn't speak, the God who spoke the universe into existence does not stop speaking unless there's a really good reason for it. Now, he hasn't given us all the reasons for that, but one of the things we can imagine is that when you're quiet for a long time and then you speak, people listen. Have you had those friends who are pretty quiet folks? When they talk, aren't you like, whoa! Okay, I'm in, what, what are you saying? 
right? Versus people like me who talk all the time. It's like, yeah, my kids tune me out because like you talk all the time. God is breaking his silence and the thing that he's saying is deeply important. You can imagine that he has held his tongue, if you will, for a season so that when he spoke, what he was speaking was the center of his plan for all of the universe. That's what he broke his silence for. So there's a silence breaking that's taking place in this that's really deeply important. And I have to wonder, think about this you know, silence for 400 years. If you're Mary, what do you think Mary did that day? I don't know if, he, if the angel came at night or if he came during the day, uh, if it was first thing in the morning, we're not told. But let's just imagine for a second that it's like midday, right? I mean, was she doing laundry before that? I mean, it was an ordinary day. There was nothing like, I don't think that Mary was sitting going, today is the day God is gonna break his silence and he's gonna speak to me. He's gonna send the angel to me. She was just going through her ordinary, everyday routine. The thing that boggles my mind even more is, what did she do after this? I mean, make a meal? Do you just spend the rest of the day in prayer? You're like, again, well, I still have to get the laundry done. You just think, what on earth was that day like? So that's the broadest context that we need to understand that God is coming into speaking to that silence. Now the second thing is the more specific context of, of the way Luke paints the story, the way, more specific, the way God has Luke paint the story. Because right before this, and, and we didn't read it because we only have so many weeks in Advent, otherwise I would, I would do every bit of it. Right before this, Luke begins his narrative with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who's the forerunner to Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus has Zechariah in the temple receiving message that he and his wife in their old age, and uh, Elizabeth, who hasn't been able to have children, is going to have a child that's gonna play a special part in the coming of the Messiah. He's not going to be the Messiah himself, but he's gonna play a special part. And the two birth narratives are meant to be compared and contrasted. The way Luke is painting it, if you were to read this, beginning to end, you'd read it and you'd go, oh, well here's Elizabeth who hasn't been able to have children, and she's gonna have children, that's miraculous. What's even more miraculous is a virgin having a child. Oh, here's Elizabeth, and here's the way John is going to be great in the, in the eyes of the Lord, but Jesus is going to be great in his nature. In other words, the whole way of telling the story in this specific context is to say John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born among men, and Jesus is far greater. Jesus is uniquely great. He is uniquely equipped to accomplish the purposes of God. He stands alone. No one touches him, no one rivals him. That's why Luke tells the narrative the way he tells the narrative. And you see these two birth narratives and you go, oh, well this is miraculous and astounding and amazing and this outstrips it and outdoes it in every way. That's what we're meant to get when we read in the context of the Gospel of Luke. So those are the two pieces of context. Do they help you, yes? Okay, let's keep going in the story then. Let's start to look, because verse 26 and 27 now, he's gonna do some stage setting before he gets into the real content of what Gabriel's going to say. So beginning in verse 26, let's read it again. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Already, immediately, we are meant to be shocked because 
John's birth was foretold in the very center of the religious establishment. Zechariah, his father, is in the temple. He's serving as a priest at the temple, offering sacrifices. This is the very center of Jewish religion. This is where God speaks. Of course, if he's gonna speak, he's gonna speak here. And then the birth of Jesus is foretold in the backwater of backwaters. The reason we are told it was in the region of Galilee, which is about a 30 mile long region, in the city of Nazareth, is because no one knew where Nazareth was. Where's that? It's like when somebody names some random Pennsylvania town to me and I go, never heard of it, right? If I say to you, I used to drive through Mahia, Texas on my way to college, you'd be like, where is Mahia? And I don't know, and you would spell it wrong, I promise you. M-E-X-I-A, yeah, and you see, these are the facts you get when you come to church, all right? It's in the middle of nowhere. Nobody knows where Nazareth is. It's the backwater of backwaters. This is not where you announce the coming of the Son of God. But This is where God shows up to Mary and speaks the most important words that have ever been spoken. The Savior of the world is coming. My Son is coming into the world. He's sending his Son into a place of humility and lowliness as if to say, he is the King, he is the Savior, my very Son, but he will come in service and in lowliness and not to a place of reputation or a palace and grandness and luxury, not even to the center of the religious comings and goings of the day. He will come into a place that you don't even recognize, into quietness, into stillness. So that's the first thing that we see. God's methods often surprise us. How many of you have ever been surprised by something God did in your life? which is amazing, because God doesn't change, his character doesn't change, his nature doesn't change, and yet he can surprise us again and again and again with how he works. He works within the parameters of who he is always, never changing, and yet within that, he can shock us with the things that he does. And that's what we're meant to see here. Now, in verse 27, he begins in earnest to point to the two things that he wants us to get from this narrative about the birth of Jesus, that he is, number one, the divine son, and that he is number two, the Davidic king, all right? Divine son, Davidic king. Look at verse 27. It says this. It says, came to Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now he points out Mary's virginity there twice, and it's not just to show that she is pure and chaste and sort of ready to be used by God. The reason he points out Mary's virgin status is because she is carrying out the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter seven, which says that the Messiah will come born to a virgin. And so the reason for highlighting that is not just to highlight uh, Mary's character, right? Something good about her. He's highlighting the fact that this child is the fulfillment of what he had written in Isaiah chapter seven. And if you remember in Isaiah chapter seven, when we're told that this child will be born to a virgin, we are then told that because the child is born to a virgin, it will be said that the child is God in the flesh, Emmanuel. In other words, the, the, the virgin birth is part of the reason for understanding that this is not an ordinary child that this is Emmanuel, God with us. So when Luke is pointing that out, it may seem subtle, but every word matters. And he's highlighting that to say the first thing, 
this child to be born will be Emmanuel, will be the divine son. Do you see that? Everybody see that? So now look what he goes on to do then. To a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now he doesn't just point out that Joseph is the house of, from the house of David because that's an interesting little tidbit or because David's a famous biblical character. He does that because in 2 Samuel chapter seven, God had made a promise to David and through that promise had communicated a prophecy that when the savior of the world came, when the Messiah came, that he would be from the house and line of David. So right here what Luke is doing and what Gabriel is doing is highlighting the fact that this is both a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter seven and a fulfillment of the prophecy and promise of 2 Samuel chapter seven. That this is the Davidic king promised and this is the son of God, Emmanuel promised. So that's why he highlights the virgin birth and that's why he highlights that Joseph is from the house of David. Now, here's the interesting thing. The timing of God, you remember in Galatians chapter four, it's actually what we're calling this whole series, in the fullness of time. Galatians four, Paul writes that in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born to redeem those under the law, to bring us out of slavery and into adoption within the family of God, which is a really wonderful, beautiful statement of the gospel. Now, in terms of the timing, Jewish marriages happened in two phases. I don't know if you know this historically, but there would be the betrothal period, which we just heard Mary was betrothed to Joseph, yes? The betrothal period was there was a bride price paid for the bride by the groom. At that point, the couple was considered legally married. She was legally Joseph's wife. Joseph was legally her husband. But usually about a year would go by, sometimes longer if the bride was younger, until they would begin to live together in marital intimacy, until they lived together as husband and wife in a day-to-day way. So the husband was preparing his home to bring his wife, his betrothed, into it. Now think about the brilliance and the beauty of the timing of God in this. He needs or is going to cause this child to be born to a virgin, which means she needs to not be living in marital intimacy with her husband. Yet he also is sending the child through the line of David. And as a result of the fact that Mary is legally married to Joseph in this moment, and he's from the house of David, the child is Joseph's child in a legal lineage sort of a way. So that the child to be born is both considered Joseph's and therefore from the line of David, but also is born unto a virgin and therefore is divine, Emmanuel, God with us. It had to happen, or God caused it to happen, within that period in between betrothal and marriage final statement of marriage. Does that make sense? So that's what Luke is sharing with us in all of this. So those two major points, he is divine son and Davidic king, and as each of those things, he accomplishes something different. One thing through being the divine son, one thing through being the Davidic king. So let's move forward in the story, shall we? Verse 28 now and 29. And he came to her, Gabriel, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then here's Mary's reaction. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. All right, let me help you understand the greeting that Gabriel gives her. So now here's the first words. We've, been, we've had the whole setup, and now Gabriel's gonna begin to speak. And here's the message he's come to speak. The first thing he says is greetings. Now that word is a word that can be translated either it's a command to rejoice or it's a hi, hello. And the bringing together or the choice of that word literally means that Gabriel is showing up and saying, joyful hello, happy hi, 
And as he says, happy high, don't you think that Mary in that moment is well? Of the options for an angelic warrior to show up in my house, I'm glad that that's the greeting because the other options are not nearly as pleasant. So happy, hi, hello, joyful greetings is what Gabriel says to her. And then he says what? What follows on that? After saying greetings, he says, oh, favored one. What Gabriel is saying is God is determined to bless you. God has decided to set his hand of favor on you. He delights in you. He takes pleasure in you, Mary. Now, I, again, you have to imagine yourself standing there in front of this messenger. And to some degree, the relief that would come over you when he says, happy, hi, hello, followed by, God is pleased with you. God is determined to bless you. Now, that's a good start. And then he says, the Lord is with you. And the tense there is not just past or present tense. It's an ongoing, the Lord is with you. So what Gabriel is saying is, in everything I'm about to tell you, the Lord will be with you. In everything I'm about to tell you, the Lord will be with you. And given what he's about to say, that's pretty crucial. Now, I want you to notice what happens next. Because that's a pretty good, again, pretty good start. And you might think, okay, I, I'm gonna feel pretty good about that. And then Mary says, Mary was troubled, but it doesn't say she was troubled because there was an angel in her house. It doesn't say she's troubled because of uh, just the, the you know, confusion or the breaking of the silence. It says she's troubled by what kind of greeting this is. Did you catch that? She's troubled by what he said. Now, you have to think, well, what would trouble you about what he said? And I think, this would be my best understanding, that in spite of the happy hi, hello, and the God is going to bless you, he said his favor on you, he's going to be with you, that what she understands from that is, something's about to happen to me, and I don't know what it is. If you say the Lord is going to be with me, then my assumption is, something hard might be about to happen. And I am, the, the word trouble there can also be intensely perplexed that Mary feels this intense reaction. And can we all say, yeah, we might feel that too. Just put yourself in, in her shoes. Oh my goodness. The intense being perplexed at that. I think she understands that God is about to do something and she's gonna be a part of it and she don't, doesn't know what it is. I mean, how many of you recognize that when God works in your life, it is a joyful, wonderful thing and also hard? and also really challenging. I think that's exactly what's going on here when Mary is troubled by what the angel says to her. If you've had God at work in your life, you've felt something similar to that. Now, let's move forward because now we move from the greeting into what is God about to do? And he's gonna share with her in earnest what God is about to do. And we're gonna see those two things again, divine son, Davidic king. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So let's pause there before we even get to verse 32 where we get the Davidic king part of it. But look first at 
at verse 30. He says, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. Well, the first thing to note there is that word favor is the same word that we translate grace in the New Testament. So there's a, there's a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so we always pay attention to, well, what words are used in that translation? And one of the key things to understand about this verse is when this is translated into Greek out of Hebrew, the word is the word for grace. Does anybody have a friend named Charis? Anybody? Do we have a Charis in here? Okay, yeah, we got some Charis. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know your name means grace? It means unmerited favor. That God, so when he says Mary, he repeats the idea of her favor, but now he uses the noun form instead of the verb form, and so he literally uses the word charis. God's unmerited favor is directed at you. And what he's saying there is, you didn't earn this. Mary was a righteous woman, but there was nothing about Mary that earned her the right to be the person through whom the savior of the world came. Anytime grace is given, it's not grace if it's given in response to the righteousness of the person. Grace is grace because it is undeserved. And therefore, Mary represents all of us here in this moment in that the favor of God, the grace of God, the unmerited blessing of God is resting upon her. And all who would come to believe in the son that Mary would bear would also be the recipients of the unmerited favor of God. When you hear Gabriel say to Mary, favored one, he is saying the same thing to you. If you are in Christ Jesus, God says to you, you are favored by me. My grace rests upon you. Not because of anything you've done, not because of any special skill, not because of wisdom to understand my purposes in the world, but because I, in my freedom, have caused my favor and pleasure to rest upon you. It's a statement of the very nature of the gospel and the way he would bring about his work in the world. But then he goes on. He doesn't just say, you have found favor with God. He then says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Luke's incredibly subtle here. He gives the name of the child. He says, you will name him Jesus. Matthew's more explicit. In Matthew chapter one, verse 22, when he gives the birth narrative, he says, the child will be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means one who saves. The name is not an accident. It's very specifically given and ordained by God. It wasn't up to Joseph and Mary what they named. We're gonna name him John. We're gonna name him Barry. We're gonna name him Fred. None of these are options that are on the table. They say his name is Jesus because he is one who saves. He will save his people from their sins. Now, the reason that we understand the importance of that is because only a divine savior can save from sin. And so right here in this verse, his name being Jesus, we're told what this divine son will do. The fact that he's divine is pointed to by the virginity of Mary. What he will do is then pointed to by his name. He will save from sins, and how he will do it is pointed to by Mary receiving the unmerited favor of God. He will do it by grace, through faith. He will not do it in response to works or righteousness of men. Do you see the power of this one verse to convey the entirety of the gospel? Who will do it? How will it be done? All right here in this one verse. Now, let's go to verse 32. 
Because in verse 32, now we turn to this idea that he is not just the divine son who saves people from their sins, but he is the Davidic king who rules over those people he saves. He will be great, verse 32 says, and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. I mean, just underline, double mark that word forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Do you see that after saying he will save people from their sins, now he turns from that and he says, this child will be called son of the most high, which is a phrase used, to be fair, of numerous characters throughout scripture. And often when it's used, it's used to mean this person is serving God faithfully and well and they represent the very nature and character of God in who they are. It's not necessarily always a claim that the child is divine or the person is divine, right? In this case, it clearly points to that fact because of all the other things surrounding it. But the term itself alone is not necessarily a statement of divinity. But look at where he goes straight from there. After saying he will be called the son of the most high, it says, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. There's that from the house and line of David that we saw earlier from Joseph. And he will reign forever, reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now that forever is really important because how many human kings do you know that never leave their throne? It never happens. See, the point of, in 2 Samuel 7, one of the reasons we know that the promise being made to David is not just a promise of you know, Solomon to come from him and then other kings in his line, is that he says that the throne of David and his son will be eternal. It will be forever. He will reign on that throne forever. And therefore, we're bringing together both that there is a king who will rule in the line of David in fulfillment of God's promise and a divine son, and in order for that throne to be forever, the king who is ruling must also be the divine one so that he can rule forever. Does that make sense? So he's bringing together these two lines and he's saying, your son is gonna both be the son of God and also the king who rules. Now, I wanna help you just take great comfort in that because what we are being told here by Gabriel is that when Jesus takes up his throne in finality, he will never be taken off of it. There will never be a time where once he begins to reign, he stops reigning. Now he reigns now, but he will come and complete and bring to fulfillment his kingdom and his rule and his reign for all eternity. That's what this is promising to us. This child who will be born will reign forever. I mean, the song we just sang, his name is Jesus. And then we sang, wonderful counselor, almighty God. The other two phrases are from, from Isaiah 9. The other two phrases are everlasting father and prince of peace. Do you get that in that song what we're doing, what we just sang, is we brought together the name from Luke 1. His name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. And then we brought together Isaiah 9 and the statement of his divine power and his rule and his reign forever. His, the government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called everlasting father, mighty God, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. We're bringing together those two things and saying, yes, this one talked about in Isaiah 9 is Jesus from Luke 1. That's who we're singing about. He has a name and we know who he is. He has come and revealed God to us. So friends, what I want you to, I mean, we, when people are ruled over by an evil king, they rejoice when that king is off the throne, right? 
And he's like, please, like, let it be. But when people are ruled over by a righteous king, they think to themselves, oh, please, like, when, when that king is taken off the throne, they are filled with despair and sadness. And the beauty of our king is that he will never leave his throne. We'll never have a cause to want him to be off his throne. We'll never treat him like an evil king that we would not want to rule over us, nor will he ever be able to be taken off his throne in such a way that we would think, oh no, what's gonna happen now that our righteous ruler isn't ruling and reigning? His reign is forever. Praise God. Now, of his rule and his reign, there will be no end, he says. And then verse 34 and 35, just continuing to walk through the story, says this, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? There we go, we see her chastity highlighted again. But here's what's interesting. Now just, again, put yourself in the story, and if Gabriel shows up in your house and you, he makes this promise, I'm gonna send a son to you, if you're engaged, if you're betrothed, your immediate probably reaction is to think, well, once I'm fully married, once that comes to fruition, then I'll have a child in the way that all children are born. But Mary must have some unique sense that God is promising something even bigger than that because of this question. Why would she ask it otherwise? The natural way of understanding it would have been to be, I'm about to be married, Joseph and I will have children. First child will be uniquely marked by God in some way, in the way that you're talking about. But from everything Gabriel has said, and, and through the testimony of God, I presume into Mary's heart, she has a sense that something bigger is being talked about here. There is something that's going to happen that is bigger than just the normal process by which a husband and wife have children. And so she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And now Gabriel goes from talking about what the son will do to how he will come. And there's really beauty in this. And he says, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So again, there's that he will be the divine son. He will be called the Son of God. That word overshadowed, when Mary's going, well, how, how is this gonna transpire? It's not a question from lacking faith. It, to some degree, it seems like some amount of curiosity. I think I'd probably ask too. How, how is this gonna take place? And that word overshadowed is the key word there because it's the same word that's used for God overshadowing in the cloud the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So if you've ever read through the Old Testament, there's this moment where God causes his glory to descend upon this place of worship that his people have in the wilderness. And he surrounds that tabernacle, that place of worship, with a cloud and his presence is in the cloud in such a way that the people are shocked and have to pull back and hide their eyes, but his glory has descended and he's saying, I'm gonna surround you in the same way, Mary, that I surrounded that tabernacle. I'm gonna surround you with the glory of my presence in such a way, and the result will be that the child in your womb will be called holy, the son of God. Will be called holy means that child will have none of the sinfulness of humanity. That child will not inherit any of the sin that every human being inherits from our father Adam, our first father, who rebelled against God and therefore we inherit a sinful nature so that we are guilty from birth. Not just when we commit our first sin, we all commit those sins, but we're guilty by nature of being human. 
And this is the uniqueness of the virgin birth, that Jesus is both fully man, born of a woman, but also divine, because he did not come about in the same way that every other human being comes about. And in that way, God dictated that he would be righteous and pure and holy, so that when he died on the cross for sins, he didn't die for his own sin or sinfulness, but for yours and for mine. Does that make sense? The virgin birth is a big deal, to put it lightly. So that's what we see here in verse 34 and 35. Now, verse 36 and 37, he says, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And then look at verse 37, the conclusion that's drawn from it is, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then this beautiful response, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So let's use those verses here just for a moment, and let's talk about some applications of the story. So we've entered into the story and just tried to walk through it and kind of put ourselves in the shoes of Mary and Gabriel and almost be in the room there if we could in such a way that causes us to see the mystery and the miracle and the beauty of everything that's unfolding in this center central moment in human history, right? So we said that this narrative is meant to show us that Jesus is the divine son who's come to save. And he is the Davidic king who has come to rule. Well, if Jesus is the divine son who's come to save, there are some applications for us. The first is that we can rejoice that God has ended his silence towards us in Jesus. God is not silent towards you. God is at work and he is speaking and he has spoken definitively in the person of Jesus. He is the fullness of the revelation of God to you and as you receive that revelation then he begins to speak to you the application of that revelation day to day into your life. God has no desire to be silent towards you. He has broken his silence in Jesus. The world is full, if you'll excuse the double entendre, the world is pregnant with the work of God, with the voice of God. In the same way that he entered into some random day, and not random, but some just ordinary day, that's the better way to say it. He entered into some ordinary day in Mary's life and changed the world (laughs) through what he declared on that day. Tomorrow, in your most ordinary of days, He is there speaking. He's not silent. Rejoice in that. He's broken the silence towards you. Rest in the knowledge that you are the object of God's unmerited favor, just as Mary was. As I said earlier, through Christ, if you are in Christ, God's grace is yours. That's how he's directed towards you, in grace, in favor towards you. He's not directed towards you in anger. He's not directed towards you in passivity. He's not directed towards you in ignoring you or apathetic towards you. Do you get how big a deal that is? I hope you feel that. I want that to be visceral for you, and I can't make that happen, but I pray God break through our hard hearts and cause us to see what it means that you have let your favor rest upon us, that you are gracious towards us, that God's inclination towards you is not one of a stern, shaking finger. His inclination towards you is tenderness and blessing and, and a heart that is soft towards you. That's amazing. 
I pray that you feel that. I pray that that strikes you, that you would go, the God of the universe and all his holiness does not ignore me, is directed towards me in favor the way he was towards Mary. And this Advent, could I invite you to see every person you encounter as a potential object of the favor of God? What if, what if every day this Advent season, every person in line in front of you, every person in the car next to you, in front of you, not going when the light turns green, every person at your office, every person in your family with whom there's relational turmoil and strife, what if you viewed every one of them as a potential object of the favor of God? just as you are an object of the favor of God? What if you recognize that Christ has come into the world to make that a possibility for them? Now we see that Jesus is not just the God who has come to save, the divine son who's come to save, but the Davidic king who's come to rule over us. And our response to him is to be just what Mary's was. I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your will. Let it be done to me according to your will. This Advent, God is calling you to submit to all of his plans for your life, whatever they are. No matter how scary, when he says stay, stay, when he says go, go, when he says rise, rise, when he says fall, fall, when he says kneel, kneel, whatever he invites you to do and calls you and commands you to do, your and my right response is to say, my life is not my own, it belongs to you to use however it pleases you. If you want me to do small things that no one ever knows about, quietly tucked away in the Nazareths of the world, I will do it. If you want me to stand on a large platform and work for you while people throw slings and arrows at me, I say yes to that. Your job this Advent is to cultivate your yes towards God. Don't you imagine this wasn't the first time Mary said yes to God? Do you think she might have said yes to a thousand small things that God had brought her way? That she might have prior to the moment that God says, I'm gonna send my son through you into the world, that before she was able to reply to that with, let it be done to me according to your will. Yes, Lord. That before she replied in that way to that moment, that she had said yes a thousand other times in a thousand small ways. Yes, Lord, I will rise and serve today. Yes, Lord, I will do the unseen thing that no one knows about, that is full of integrity and truth. Yes, Lord, I will serve without any consideration of my own place or my own reputation. I will do all that you give me to do today. My encouragement to you is to cultivate that yes towards everything God has for you. Next thing is to trust that he will go with you in everything that he has for you. The Lord is with you. Remember Gabriel said to Mary, when the, when the king rules over you and says, submit to my will for your life and go where I say to go and stay where I say goes, remember that you never go alone. You will never, Christ has broken into the world and you will never go anywhere God has you go or stay anywhere God has you stay. You will never be alone. The Lord is with you. And then finally, believe that nothing is impossible for God. If the Son of God, if God has taken on humanity, if God has become a person,
person in Jesus Christ? Is there anything that he would want to bring into your life that is impossible for him to do? The answer is no. There is nothing that is impossible for God. Whatever, and I'm praying this for you this Advent. I am praying specifically that God would break through in a place that has felt impossible in your life. A relationship that is fractured or broken, uh, a thing at work that has just seemed too hard, uh, a way forward that you know you need to take that has just felt like it cannot be done, uh, a breakthrough in, in the advancement of the work to which he has called you and you've been faithfully serving in it. I am praying that the thing that has felt impossible, that God would show you the incarnation of his son declares that it is not impossible. A breakthrough with a child. Whatever, whatever it is that has seemed impossible, as if it could never be right, as if it could never move forward, as if it could never be a place where God brought fruit into your life and fruitfulness, that's gonna be my prayer for you this Advent. God, show them that nothing is impossible with you. Now, would you join me in those prayers? Let's pray that for one another this Advent. I commit to you to pray that way. Now, the last thing is this. I wanna bring those two things together because he has emphasized that Jesus is the divine son who saves and he is the Davidic king who rules and he is not only one of those things and sometimes we want him to only be one. Sometimes we act as if he's the divine son who's come to save and we're thankful for it but we don't want him to rule over us. I'm happy to take your saving work. I'll leave behind living the way you want me to live. I'm gonna live how I want to live. Friends, you cannot have the divine son and not the king ruler, yes? And the other way too, some of us like the idea that he sets out the parameters and the rules and the regulations and that legalistic part of ourselves wants to believe that I and my righteousness will follow all of those ways. I and my strength will go where you tell me to go. I and my wisdom will obey the rules that you set forth in your word. I will do that as if we don't need him to be the divine son who saves. Friends, your righteousness is insufficient. You cannot keep the law of God. This is the purpose of God sending his divine son into the world. You need him to save you and you need to be filled with all the love and joy and gratefulness and faith that come from saying you are the son and you alone can save. I cannot save myself. So we embrace the grace of God through the divine son and we embrace the rule of God through the king, the Davidic king. And he must be both at all times and always. So we'll reflect more on that as we move our way through Advent. That's what Luke offers us today. I pray it's fruitful and meaningful to you as you put yourself in the story. Next week, come back. We'll worship more together and we'll continue through uh, God's work in Advent. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, divine son, come to save. We praise you. Lord Jesus, king in the line of David, come to rule over us in a kingdom of righteousness and justice and peace. We welcome your rule over us. We adore you. Father God, we thank you for sending your son into the world and we thank you for every detail of how you brought that about. We thank you for sending Gabriel to speak to Mary and then recording those words for us so that we could see the beauty of the mystery of the plan unfold, that we could see every nuance of the story, not just the facts, the bare bones, but to see what took place on that day, at that time, what words were spoken, that we might treasure 
all that you do. We delight in you. Everything that you do is perfect and right. And so we delight to see it, to hear it, and to receive it. We sing to you now, recognizing that the right response of people who have received your favor through the divine son is to sing your praises. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and close our time with worship.